Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more, they hated him. Once Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. So they hated him even more. Look, I've had another dream. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. His father rebuked him and said, Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and all bow to the ground before you? Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers, and bring word back to me. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man said, I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph found them at Dothan. But they saw him from a distance and conspired to kill him. They stripped him of the long robe with sleeves and threw him into a pit. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead on their way to Egypt. His brothers drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. His brothers took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very old story. Dr. Gerhard Bernard, one of the great German theologians of the last century, has said, here we have evidence again that this same story had been told around the northern campfires and the southern. And after David reunited the tribes and Solomon built a temple where they had an educated priesthood, these stories were put together. So in this story, if you were listening carefully, it talks about a caravan of Ishmaelites and Midianites and Midianites and Ishmaelites. Well, one was north, one was south. They're two different tribes entirely. But the two stories were meshed because they'd been told around campfires a long time. Let me remind you what we know about this dysfunctional family. The Jews claim they're beginning to an old man and an old woman who have no children. They were living in ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. When one day God came by and asked if they would like to have a child, they giggled. Where were you when we needed you? Would you like to have a child? Pack up your tent, roll up your bed, come with me. He led them 600 miles west and eventually 400 miles south. No baby. So Sarah got disgusted and said to Abraham, If you're ever going to father a child, you better do it with my slave girl. He said, whatever you think. 
They had a child named Ishmael. Then Sarah got pregnant. When her child came, she named him Isaac. She didn't want that other one around. And she said to Abraham, get rid of them. And he chased them into the desert. Isaac grew up, married a young woman named Rebekah, and they had twins, Esau, then Jacob. Jacob born holding on to the heel of his brother. And almost from the beginning, the father loved the older more, and the mother loved the younger more. The older one was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter and gatherer, and the father loved him. The younger one stayed around the tent and helped his mother with the chores and the cooking. So when the father got old and almost blind, knew death was close, it was time for him to officially bestow the birthright on the older son. The younger one and the mother tricked this near-blind father, and Jacob got the blessing instead. Esau said, I'll kill him. And Jacob ran 400 miles back to Haran, from whence his mother and father had come, where his uncle Laban still lived. And he worked for his uncle Laban for 20 years. And during that 20 years, ended up with two wives and two slave girls and 12 little boys and one little girl. Decided it was time to go home. And as he started down the Jordan River Road, word came to him that Esau had heard he was coming, and Esau was riding toward him with 400 men. After 20 years, he assumed Esau was still angry and wanting to kill him. Tried to soften him up a little by sending out ahead 220 sheep, 220 goats, 50 cattle, 30 camels, 30 donkeys. Even so, he wasn't sure. And so, where the Jabbok River comes into the Jordan, he struggled all night with a man who turned out, of course, to be God, who wrenched his hip out of socket and gave him a new beginning. How would you like to be Israel? And that's where we left him, limping off down the road with these four women, all these little children, to meet Esau and 400 men. As they got close... Jacob started bowing down to his brother, bowing down to his brother. Seven times, the Bible says, he bowed down to his brother and kept calling him, My Lord, my Lord. And Esau jumped down off his horse, ran over, threw his arms around Jacob, and kissed him on the, on the neck. Wow. Esau loved him, had forgiven him. He said, I'll ride along with you. Jacob said, oh, no, that isn't necessary. Please, with all these little ones, all these sheep and goats, we can't go fast enough. You go on that. We'll, we'll catch up later. And so Esau rode off into the sun to be a hunter and gatherer. And Jacob and his descendants would become farmers and tenders of domesticated animals. And now today's story. We have four major players. First of all, you have a father whose life was almost destroyed because his mother and father chose favorite children, and he does exactly the same. He loved Joseph more than all the others, had a beautiful robe made for him. Now, you're used to hearing this called a coat of many colors if you read the old King James Version of the Bible, and the reason for that is that 
when there were more Jews after the time of Alexander the Great, after the Greeks controlled the Mediterranean world, there were more Jews who could read and write Greek than who could read and write Hebrew, so a group of 70 scholars gathered down on northernmost Africa at ancient Alexandria, and they translated the scriptures into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint, and the word they chose in Greek to describe the robe means with many colors. When St. Jerome was commanded to translate the scriptures into Latin, he used the Septuagint. And when the King James scholars 400 years ago in 1611 translated, they used that ancient Septuagint as well, coat of many colors. It's not what it says in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it literally says, from the palms of the hands to the ankles. A coat from the palms of the hands to the ankles. But scholars at least are agreed on this much. It must have been a doozy. The other brothers certainly understood it was extra special. They hated him. Joseph or the father? Probably both. They hated him. If you have more than one child, more than one grandchild, you know that some are more likable than others. They're never the same. And some are more likable than others. The big chore is loving them the same amount, even if you love them differently. Loving the same amount, even if you love them differently. When our mother died 18 months ago, my sister and brother and I were reminiscing, as you all do when someone you love has died, I want to say that I have one of the greatest sisters and brothers ever. I don't think we've argued about anything since we got out of junior high school. Since junior high school, I cannot remember a single argument with my brother or sister. Through all of our, our dad's long battle with cancer and his death and, and our mom's uh, last years in an assisted living center and then her death, never an unhappy crossword. We were absolutely together on everything. They're really wonderful, but they're not just like me, and I'm not just like them. And when we were younger, we fussed. You know, he got more, she got more, hers was better, that caused more, that sort of thing. He shoots the basketball because he's taller than I am and I can't reach it, you know, those sorts of things. And inevitably, our mom had to be the peacemaker to make a decision. Well, it's her turn, now it's his turn. I think this one, and then whoever wasn't favored in that decision got upset. And we were remembering those times, but when we had those times, as soon as mom could get the offended one off by herself or himself, she made it very clear how she felt about that one. Every time it was my turn to be that one who felt one of the others got more or better, she would say to me, you're my firstborn. Firstborn is so special. Nobody could ever, ever take your place in my heart. When my sister had gotten her feelings hurt, she said mom would get her off as soon as possible and say, 
Jacqueline, you're my only daughter. I got two boys, but you're my only daughter. And nobody could ever, ever take a daughter's place in the mother's heart, ever. And our brother said when he felt he'd got the short stick, mom would get him off to one side and say, you're my baby. Nobody ever takes the baby's place. You will be my baby forever. And we all felt loved. We all felt loved. Not loved more. She never said, I love you more. Just there's a place in my heart that nobody else can ever take. There's a place in my heart nobody can ever take. There's a place in my heart nobody can ever take. Number two, we have Joseph. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, who will be coming to do our Barton Clinton Gordy series in February, has written, Joseph and Benjamin were born when Jacob was getting along in years. They were born of favored wife, and they were fully spoiled. A rabbi, Everett Fox, has said, Joseph brought much of this unfortunate feeling on himself. There we were out in the field. In this dream, I dreamed that there we were binding up bundles of wheat. And all of a sudden, mine just stood straight up and all of yours circled around mine and bowed down. I had another dream. The sun, Dad. The moon, Mom. And all 11 of you bowing down to me. He was a twit. <laughs> he carried stories home. He told him all the dreams, and he was always the star of the dream. You know any folks who feel entitled? Last weekend, I was reading a rather long article about F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was not my favorite. Yet some say The Great Gatsby might have been the best novel any American produced in the last century. They debate those sort of things. He was born in 1896, St. Paul, Minnesota. Right from the moment he was born, his parents told him he was extra special. They were giving him the name Francis Scott because of a cousin he had named Key who wrote the Star Spangled Banner. They called him Scott. They had lost two little girls, one after the other, to death just before he was born. That might have affected the way they treated him that they had lost to. So, being good Irish-American Catholics, they sent him to Catholic school. But they were very careful to say when they enrolled him each fall, now sometimes Scott doesn't like to get up in the morning. And sometimes he gets tired before the day is over. So, he just has to go halftime, and he decides which half. And the school agreed to that. Some mornings he didn't want to get up, so he didn't go till noon. Other days when he felt like getting up, he went home at noon. So at 16, they threw him out of school. But he'd already shown some talent as a writer. And with their money, they managed to get him into Princeton. And then he was failing, of course. Enlisted 
to be a part of World War I, and before he could be shipped to any sort of action, the war was over. One night at a country club, he met a southern belle from Montgomery, Alabama named Zelda. Said she wasn't about to marry him. He had no way of making a living. He wrote a book, sold a lot of copies. She married him. But they were self-destructive. They drank and drank. Eventually, they ended up in Paris, knowing people like Ernest Hemingway. And even Hemingway said, they drink too much. I don't like being around them. In one of his novels, F. Scott Fitzgerald talks about how things are much tougher in the 1930s. So tough, he said, we may have to send the butler down to stand in the bread line for us. They were going through an equivalent of about $400,000 a year, and they ended up with nothing. Nothing. Zelda ended up in a mental institution, and F. Scott Fitzgerald was in the apartment of a woman, not his wife, had a massive heart attack, and died at 44. He was entitled. Entitled. Number three, you have the brothers. You know the thing that stood out to me as I read this story? They're conspiring to kill him. And finally they decide, well, let's throw him down in that cistern that collected water in the wintertime when it rained and then was used up in the hottest months of the summer. No water in it, the author tells us here. No water in it at that time. Threw him down in there to figure out what to do with him, just how they were going to kill him, and they ate lunch. Gail and I were in Dallas, November 22, 1963. I was in class systematic theology at Southern Methodist University when Lee Harvey Oswald killed the President of the United States. And while he sat up in that window waiting for the motorcade to arrive, he ate a box of fried chicken. The FBI found the bones right there in the window. He'd been sitting there feeding his face waiting to shoot the President of the United States. How callous can you be? Dr. Theodore Dalrymple is a psychiatrist in London. He has specialized in much of his adult lifetime in the criminally insane. Why do people do such horrific things to other human beings? And recently he was interviewed about this grisly killing in Oslo, Norway. A man trying to be like Timothy McVeigh created a bomb out of the same materials, right? Underneath the government building, blew off the side of it, wasn't nearly so successful in killing nearly so many as Timothy McVeigh. And even before the bomb went off, he had gone to an island. Short distance away, where he knew teenagers were encamped there, had all kinds of automatic weaponry. Couldn't buy enough ammunition in Norway, but he could in the United States. He bought them through the Internet. And so he started shooting these teenagers. It took an hour for the police to get there, and he ended up killing 76. Dr. Dalrymple, what do you think? And he said, many of the people in prison are there for very apparent reasons. Somebody has something they want, and rather than working to get one of their own, they just take yours. But these really horrific people 
who do such terrible things we don't fully understand. I mean, some will say this young man's father abandoned him and his mother <clears throat> ran off with another woman when this young man was 15. But he said, we've had millions of kids who had that experience, who rose above it. Some say it's poverty. Poverty causes people to be mean and hateful and violent. But look at all the poor people who rose above poverty and made a lasting contribution. He said, there was a time when we had religion that lifted people to higher standards, to greater values. But all across Europe, he said, religion is absolutely dead. And then he said, about the only thing we're going to learn from this young man is just how horrific human beings can be. Number four. In the New Testament, the gospel writers found a way to say to their readers, pay close attention. They put a little Greek word in the text. I've told you this before. In English, we would write it I-D-O-U. It has a rough breathing mark over it in Greek so that it's pronounced sort of hedu, hedu. It's usually translated behold. But it's a word that means something like, and would you believe? And would you believe? This 17-year-old boy has been sent 50 miles by his father to check up on his brothers. And when he gets there, they're not there. And would you believe there was a man who said, can I help you? I'm looking for my brothers. They went to Dothan, 15 miles that way. And when he got there, there they were. And would you believe when his brothers were trying to figure out how to kill him, there came a caravan from Gilead through Bethshean on the way to Egypt. And one of them said, well, he is our brother. Let's just sell him. And they hauled him out and took the 20 pieces of silver and kept eating their lunch. And would you believe? When I read this, I thought again of John Steinbeck's East of Eden. It's not like the movie. The movie starring James Dean all those many years ago was just about the last third of the book. If you want to gain what... Steinbeck was trying to do, if you want that last scene to mean all that it's supposed to mean, you've got to follow this Trask family for three generations. Two little boys have a father who's about to have a birthday, and one of them has remembered, and he's been doing little menial chores that a child could do, saving up his money. The story begins right after the Civil War in this country and goes down to, the, to World War I a time when every man carried a pocket knife. If he could afford one, this little boy saves, 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 and buys the best pocket knife in their town. The other brother suddenly remembers, oh, no, he's getting something for Dad's birthday. I forgot about Dad's birthday. He finds a little stray puppy, takes him home to his dad, and said, look what I got for you. The father makes a big deal over the puppy, puts the, rock, the knife up on the mantelpiece and forgets about it child who felt his gift was rejected acts out 
Well, it goes through three generations. The gifts differ. The outcome differs, but it's always tragic. In this home, there comes a Chinese-American named Lee who does everything that needs doing around the house and sees this family just unwinding generation by generation, making the same mistake, and he thinks Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel. And he opens the Bible and starts to read, and there it is. God said to Cain, what you've done in killing your brother is so bad, you have got to get out of the garden. Go east. That's where the desert is. Go east. Get out. But, Timshel, that's the Hebrew word. This is what John, John Steinbeck's focusing on. He has this Chinese-American tell this to the father. As the most recent, that third generation, the one played by James Dean, who gets so angry at his brother, whose gift is accepted, that he takes him down the street and shows him that their mother, whom the younger brother thought was dead, is in fact a prostitute. She's a madam. And he gets so upset, he goes and joins the army, and he's killed in World War I. Now this, ancient, this old, old father hears that the son's been killed in the army. He has a massive stroke. He's lying near death. And Cal comes to see him. The James Dean character comes to see the father. And the father is dying. He's angry. And the old Chinese Lee pulls this dying man up by the front of his pajamas and says to him, You cannot let this go on and on. You must speak that word I told you about. You must speak that word I told you about. And Adam Trask says to his boy, Tim shall. Thou mayest, the King James translate, thou mayest triumph over evil. You don't have to keep on doing what all of you have been doing forever. You can be different. You can be different. Well, Joseph is not free, but he's not dead. And the one who chose this family is waiting for him in Egypt. Amen.